0: God watches over us and cares for us. And there's nothing in our lives that we should be discouraged or disillusioned about when we have proper perspective of who He is in our lives. I want to invite your attention to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a passage that we have been working through for the past couple of weeks. And as we work through this passage, we're seeing a a beautiful journey. It's down the road to recovery from despair and disillusionment to hope and wholeness. And a man named Asaph went down that road and he stopped and he turned around and found that God brought to him a a place of hope and healing and and wholeness. He was restored. He was was recovered, if you will, from this place of discouragement. And while you're turning there, hopefully you're getting close and you're there, while you're turning, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. Have you ever felt like giving up? I mean, be honest. Have you ever come to the place where you said, I just don't know that it's worth it to try to pursue God? Have you ever felt like giving up on your faith or giving up on the church? Have you ever struggled with what you believed and what you saw compared to the world around you and and said, these things are just so incompatible, I want to quit? Many, many people, I believe, even in this room, if we're honest today, have come to that very dilemma, and you have said, I quit. I've watched people do this over the course of my life. I've watched people walk away. They struggle to understand something. Maybe they had a hurt in their life. Maybe they were hurt by the church or an injustice or a tragedy. Something came into their home or into their life, and because of that, they couldn't make sense of it, so they just said, I quit. Well, I'm so thankful for Psalm 73 because there's one word in Asaph's vocabulary that made all the difference. Asaph went through exactly this kind of crisis. He was a, a godly man, and we know that God brought him through the crisis. And I want you to remember that, that he was a godly man, that he was appointed by the king, by David, to be a worship leader. He was to worship and to lead worship before the ark of the Lord. And he never came to the place of saying, I quit. I quit. He said what we've titled this series. He said, I almost quit. He said in verse 2, my feet almost slipped. I almost went over the edge. I almost walked away. I almost gave up. But, but this is a man you need to really grasp with me. I, I said from the beginning, I want you to see Asaph as a friend. I want you to see Asaph become one who would be a counselor to you, a comfort to you. He didn't just read Scripture. Think about this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he was privileged to actually write Scripture. I cannot think of a more intimate and incredible opportunity than to be led of the Lord, to write down your thoughts, your heart, be led by the Spirit, and it become part of the ancient songbook of the people of God. This is not just an average Joe somewhere. This is a man that's in full-time ministry. He is living his life for God. He's influencing others for God. And yet he said, I almost quit. I almost gave up. I almost said it's not worth it. I can't make sense of it. If you remember two weeks ago, I started by saying that he couldn't make sense of what God was doing in the world. He said, why do the wicked prosper? There are people out there that are not living for the Lord at all, and their life is just fine. And I can't make sense of that. And then he looked at his own life, and he said, I can't make sense of what God's doing in my heart. I mean, all I've got is struggle I'm doing my dead level best to live for the Lord, and all I face is heartache and pain and struggle. So he couldn't make sense of it. And so when he put those two things together, what God was doing in the world that made no sense to him, what God was doing in his own life which made no sense to him, he came to the third conclusion, I really am wondering, is it worth it to live a godly life, to live a moral life? Have I kept myself pure for nothing, he said. I'm just struggling. But he came to this road to recovery, and I talked about this where I said two weeks ago, the very first step on the road to recovery is this. You just need to stop. He stopped himself. He would not let his mind take over in this way. He would not allow himself to go down that road. He said, if I had followed those thoughts, then I would have betrayed your children. He said, I would have been For you, uh, God, one who did great damage. I would have hurt others. I mean, here he is in a place of influence, and and he had to stop. And so for some of you, you've not taken this step yet. If you remember, I told a hypothetical story about a husband and wife who were traveling down the road. Again, very, very hypothetical. And the wife told the husband, you were supposed to turn back there, and the husband said confidently, no, it's still ahead. And that husband, with his uh, assurance of himself, said, we'll keep going a little further. And finally, when they came to a dead end, he said, I think our turn was back there. And this hypothetical wife said, you're right. And I was right. And he had to stop and turn around. And usually on that dark country road where there's no turnoff, it takes maybe a three or a four-point turn. Well, what we've said to you about Asaph is this, that there's a five-point turn. And the very first step was to stop. The second one was to focus. Last week we said, he went to the sanctuary. I love that. Verse 17, he said, then I went to the sanctuary of God. We know he went there to worship. We know he went there to be reminded of the promises of God and the protection of God and to be with the people of God. And we preached through that last week, so I I don't want to re-preach it, but I just want to recap it. That for you and for me, when we get our minds focused on the Lord, it gives us a new perspective. And some of you are in desperate need of new perspective. You're looking at the world in in such a myopic way, a short-sighted way, that you're missing that there's a bigger perspective and that God has a plan and a purpose laid out. But his thinking became clearer and clearer. God said to him some very unique things and he came through that and it walked him through a place of truth. When he encountered truth in focused worship, God began his road to recovery. And so what I want you to see with me today, we're going to move forward to the third step. The third step is this, it's to confess. We have have sort of used one word for each of these sermons. We've called this one simply confess. And this is a step toward God. He stopped, He focused, and now He is confessing sin. And we're going to come to, as Brother Joe has already read, some of the most brutally honest of all of this text. And I hope that it will help somebody today in a very unique way. What does it mean to confess sin? Confessing sin is nothing more than admitting to God the things that are wrong in your life. Admitting to God the things that are wrong in your life. I want you to underline those words, admitting to God. And see, we'll do today this very simple thing. We're going to talk about what it means to confess sin and why it's so important to do so. Again, as we thought about uh, focusing last week, as he went to worship and met with God, he gained new perspective. And once his thinking was straightened out, he began to pray. And this is an important thought for all of us. I believe that it's clear in Scripture. We see this over and over again. When we have the right perspective, then we we begin to move into the right behavior. Prayer flows out where truth flows in. Let me say that again as you're writing it down. Prayer flows out as truth flows in. You see, he doesn't begin confessing right off the bat. No, he stops and goes, my thinking is cluttered. There's so much struggle. I can't make sense of what God's doing here and here. And I'm not sure what to do. And he made a decision. I, I hope you remember this. I said that the road to recovery does not start with an answer, but with a commitment, with a decision. God may very well leave you in a difficult place with unanswered questions. It's not a matter of God giving you the answer first and then you go, oh, now I say I'll move forward. No, God is the answer to all of those unanswered questions. And when you seek him, as Asaph did, then your mind begins to clear and you begin to communicate with God. And that's what happened. He starts praying. I love this as we will look at our text together again in a moment. Think about this. Prayer begins to flow out as truth flows in. I would say it this way. One way to measure your grasp of truth is to look at your prayer life. Because where truth is flowing in, prayer will flow out. I I know a whole lot of people in this place, in our church, that would affirm our statement of belief, our statement of faith. You You would confidently say, I know God can help me in situations that I'm facing right now. That's truth. But how are you praying? Here's here's what I would say. Some of you would say, I believe that God can do all things. Well, let me just give you a test. How many of you believe that God can do all things? How many of you are praying in faith? How many of you believe that we are all sinners? How aware are, are you of the sin in your own life? Or let me ask you this, couple those two things together, God can do all things, we're all sinners, who are you praying for? You see, when the the truth of that uh, word comes into your life, that there are lost people in your midst, you'll begin to do as that young girl did this week and text your lost friends and say, God changed my life and he can and will change yours too. You see, I believe the reason that we are losing ground in America as evangelical Christians is because we're sitting on the sidelines silent. We've not encountered truth to a place where truth flows in and prayers begin to flow out. I shared this with the students. I was with a friend who works at the North American Mission Board this last week. The state of Mississippi is the most religious state in the United States. That means that there are more churches, and that's really more church buildings or organized congregations. There are more churches in Mississippi per capita than there are in any other state in the nation. And on any given Sunday, less than 70%, Uh, Excuse me, less than 30% are actually in church. About 68% of of our state is unchurched. That means this morning, 30% of the population of Mississippi is actually attending church. And that doesn't mean that everybody that's a member of a church is actually going either. I mean, there are a lot of people that, that are away. There's summer vacation, and there's travel ball, and there's family events, and we had company coming into town, and it rained today, and it, and all of a sudden, and I'm not saying that that church attendance is the only measure, but what I'm saying is, we have marginalized ourselves. We've become more and more irrelevant, and we've got to come back to the foundational basics that Jesus Christ offers free and clear salvation to all who will trust in Him. And if we don't get back to that, and we don't see a sweeping awakening within the churches, we are headed for trouble. Would you agree with that? I mentioned in my prayer time earlier kind of the the focus of where some things are going. Do you realize in Canada and other nations that pastors are being arrested for hate speech because they call sin, sin? We're not far from that. There's going to come a day where they're going to press in and say, well, anybody of any persuasion, whatever they think, can go to any bathroom in your church they want to go to. There will be people that will say, if you begin to do this or that or the other, you're discriminating. And we don't want to be discriminatory. We want to love everybody. But we're not going to go throwing common sense or the Word of God out of our lives and out of our church. We're also not going to translate patriotism for godliness. You know, there's a lot of good things that people do. I shared in Sunday school this morning. You know, the Bible says in the book of Judges that uh, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And, and we think the worst. That people were just raping and plundering and pillaging and going crazy. No, there were some people that were trying to be decent and earn a living. I have some good neighbors around me. They keep their grass cut and they smile and wave across the mailbox and they speak all of the time and they are lost and dying and headed for a Christless eternity. You don't go to heaven because you're good or bad. You go to heaven because you're saved. And we've got to come back to that place. And when truth begins to invade our life, when truth flows in, prayers go up. I think we're a prayerless people. I think that's why James would say, you have not. Why? Because you ask not. I think we're leaving a whole lot of blessing on the table because we've never actually asked God for the blessing. We've just assumed it, and God has blessed us so much as a nation that we've forgotten where the blessing came from. Prayer flows out where truth flows in. If you believe those truths, you'll act upon them. Now, let's look at our text together, Psalm 73, beginning in verse 21. Then I realized that my heart was bitter. I was torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. I want you to see that he begins confession. You see, he encounters truth, and it drives him to pray. Uh, Three thoughts that I want you to see about this before we get into his actual confession. Number one, confession is a normal part of a healthy Christian life. Confession is a normal part of a healthy Christian life. Don't feel like if you have to come to the altar, if you have to say, God, I'm sorry, if you have to cry out to the Lord in confession, that somehow that's a sign of dysfunction, that something's wrong with you. In fact, I would say it this way if you right now don't think that you have anything in your life to confess, if you don't think that there's sin in your heart and in your life, the Bible says that we are deceiving ourselves if we say we have no sin. I would say if you're walking around thinking there's no sin in you and in your life, you've got your blinker on and you're rolling down the highway. You ever seen that guy? I drove past 12 of them on the way to Florida this week, and I would drive past and just do this. I'm going, please turn your blinker off. Are you going around the world right? I mean, what are you doing? Come on, dude. Turn your blinker off. And then Stephanie every once in a while will catch me. I'm about half deaf from all of the shooting that I've done over the course of my life, and I can't hear that little click, and so Stephanie will go, turn your blinker off, buddy. You going around the world? I'm so thankful that I have in my life the Holy Spirit number one who is God eternal and Holy Spirit number two whose name is Stephanie. She keeps me straight. But if you think you have no sin in your life, your blinker's on. You are oblivious to the fact that there is a place in your life that you need to turn loose of some things. Confession is not a sign of dysfunction. It simply means that you're aware of God working in your life. It means that you're aware of your sin nature and your shortcomings. You know, the Apostle Paul, the more he grew, you would think this guy's got it together. He called himself the chief of sinners because he was more painfully aware of the sin in his heart and in his life. Many people were brought up in maybe a tradition where you went to a priest to confess. I'm so thankful that God has given us a glorious picture in Jesus Christ that we now have full and unfettered access to God with one mediator, Jesus, who is our great high priest. And then he calls us a kingdom of priests. So I would say it this way. We are to confess our sins to God, but confessing our sins to one another can be a helpful thing. If you're struggling with something, even after you've confessed it to God, you still have not found peace, I would encourage you go to a friend, go to a brother or sister in Christ and begin to dialogue with them, including the priest that's sitting next to you. You see, we are a kingdom of priests and you can go to someone else and that may offer some perspective and some accountability. And let me say this to you, if somebody does share with you their struggle, their sin, then your obligation is to help them grasp the promises of the gospel. It's to help them come before God and believe the truth. It's not for you to gossip. It's not for you to to talk about them. It's not for you to in some way judge them. It's for you to love them and encourage them. The Bible says confess your sins to God. But beyond that, I think then we're at liberty and not obligation, to share with others. No believer should be struggling at length with guilt. Well, let me say that again. No believer should be struggling at length with guilt. If you find yourself with a guilty conscience recognized as a believer, there is no condemnation. You have been given forgiveness. You want uh, to confess that and live in the liberty and joy that God brings. That's where Asaph was. Asaph cried out. The confession of sin almost has, has left the radar of most Christians. It really has. We just live our lives and go through life, and we pray mostly asking for things, but not confessing sin. I would say this. If we do not confess, we do not change. The whole point of the gospel is that it changes you. It never leaves us where we are. Confession is an evidence that you can see. Number two, I want you to see this. Confession exposes what is hidden in your hearts. Let's look in greater detail together at verse 21 again. Look there with me. He, he says, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. You see, he, he began to see when he came into the presence of God, he saw a shortcoming. He was not self-aware until he came into the presence of God. But now he's able to make confession. When things don't go your way, you need to understand that the sins of Asaph will be crouching at your door. Hello? Some of you are going to be plunged into an Asaph moment before we finish this series in the next two weeks. Some of you are going to come to the place where life doesn't make sense, and you come up against a struggle or a tragedy or an issue, and you go, I don't get it, and I want to quit. God, you are not fair. God, you are not right. God, you are not taking care of me. Asaph began to think all those things, and he stopped himself. And he focused in worship on the Lord. And when he did, truth entered. And when truth enters in, prayer flows out. And when prayer began to flow out, the very first prayer was confession. God, I was confused in my mind. My mind was a wreck. He he says quite literally there, my my heart, my mind, look at it. I realized that my heart was bitter. He confesses bitterness. I, I saw how other people were being blessed more than me, and it just churned in my spirit. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever looked at your neighbor and said, he's doing fine and I'm a mess? And it churned in your heart. I'm not talking about just the neighbor at your house. It may be the neighbors in your Sunday school class or the person that's sitting near you at church. And you go, why is God blessing them so much? I I try really hard. Lord, I became bitter. And bitterness can destroy unless you've got a proper perspective. Let Let me share with you a story. Bruce Goodrich... He was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M. One night, he was on a forced march, a run with others, and he dropped right there on that march in the middle of the night. Bruce Goodrich never got up. He dropped, and he'd had a heart attack. A short time after the tragedy, Bruce's father wrote a letter to the administration to the student body, to the faculty, and the Corps of Cadets. And this is what he said. I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from the Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. But listen to these words. Mr. Goodrich wrote about his son's passing. I hope it will comfort some somehow to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. God had uh, an appointment made for Bruce... And Bruce made his appointment with the Lord and now is secure in his celestial home with Jesus. And when the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be so that many, many, many others will consider where they will spend eternity. You see, this father had the right perspective, and right perspective leads us to a long view. And when it leads us to a long view, we begin to understand that the troubles of this life somehow in the hands of a sovereign God can be used for beauty and for great gain and for his glory. Is your life worth more than just the living that you're trying to make Can you recognize that God has a plan and a purpose that he didn't bring you into this room or into this church or into this city for an accidental reason? That you are here by the providential hand of God and his design for each of us is that we would reach others with the gospel. That we would be a living display of the glory of God to the world. When our hearts become embittered because we see things with short-sighted perspective, we miss out on what God desires for us. I want us to move a little bit farther. We, we want us to see that he confessed three sins. I've already mentioned one. Number one, he said my spirit was bitter. He confessed bitterness. He said in my heart I became bitter toward those things that I saw. I saw how you were blessing them and it wrecked me. In fact, I want you to write this down somewhere. Bitterness, Bitterness hinders forgiveness. When I'm bitter, I'm not receiving forgiveness from God, and I'm certainly not offering it to other people. You ever met a bitter Christian? I I can't think of a more sad place and state in life than to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet allow bitterness to creep into your heart. It robs you of joy. It zaps your energy. it, It strains your focus, and it kills your faith. Some of you need to confess, you know what God, I've looked at things and determined that somehow you're not fair and because of that, my heart's been bitter. Asaph confessed that to the Lord. Number two, I want you to see this. He, He said, my heart ruled my head. Look at verse 22. I was so foolish and ignorant. He said, my heart was ruling my head. My emotions were stirred up. Everything that I knew to be true about you went out the window. If you remember from our very first sermon together in this series, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He knew the truth of God's goodness, and now he's saying God's not good. His heart is displaying something that's overruling his head. My emotions got the best of me, and I started to think like an unbeliever. He said, I must have looked like a brute beast, like a senseless animal to you, God. I was clouded and in the dark. I acted like there was no hope. I acted like there was no future. I acted like there was no help. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Asaph is reading your mail. You ever been so clouded with your emotion that you lost sight of the truth of the goodness of God? How many of you remember the movie Home Alone? Remember that? Parents in a frantic scramble leave to go out of the country on a trip and they realize that they leave their kid. I don't remember, 10 years old or so. They leave him at home. And he's left to defend his castle because two robbers have scoped it out. And he messes things up pretty bad. I mean, he put tar and feather and and toys on the floor for him to step on. And he rigs all kinds of things. And the house is a chaotic mess. The amazing thing to me is the day that mom and dad arrive back into town, everything is nice and neat and in order, which proves to me that kids can clean their rooms. Can I get an amen from some? Don't throw rocks, kids. I know that there are some kids that may get aggravated. Let me just give you a simple illustration. Uh, allowing your heart to rule your head is like allowing your kids to run your home. Now, kids bring joy and happiness, and, and your heart can bring joy and happiness, but if you let your heart rule your head, there's going to come chaos. Your heart is like a child, and your head, when it's guided by the truth of God's Word, as a, is like a parent. And your heart can bring chaos, but the head will bring order. I, I want your heart To come to the place of not running your house, but submitting to your head. If you allow the heart to rule, you're going to become like Asaph. He said, I became senseless and ignorant. I allowed my grief to rule my life. I I know people in this room that are allowing grief, their heart, to rule the truth of their head. I've watched many a believer who would claim, I know the promises of God. My loved one is in a better place. We say that, but it becomes... So trite, so, so pat. If we really believe that there is a heaven, then our lives will not continually be filled with grief. David, when he lost a child, washed his face, got up, ate, went to the house of the Lord and worshiped because he said, He cannot return to me, but I will go to him. There's a confident assurance in the promises of God. That's why heaven ought to be for all of us sweeter and sweeter. Death is victory because Jesus has overcome death. Number three, I want you to see this. He, he confesses, I was acting on impulse. He says, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Animals act on impulse. But God's given us the beautiful, beautiful gift of logic. You think about this. Asaph said, when my heart was grieved, I was being pushed around by the in- impulses of bitterness and despair and unbelief. My emotions ran wild. My feet almost slipped. Everything I knew to be true washed out the window. And we live in a culture that loves impulse. Help me out with this phrase. See if you can finish it. Our culture says, our society says, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. If it's something that you desire, just go for it. And there's such a sense of relativism. Follow your heart. Listen to your heart. You listen to a radio talk show. Somebody calls in with a problem. And nine times out of ten, the psycho babble that they're going to get is, well, you just need to listen to your heart. You need to follow your heart. Well, my Bible tells me that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And if we're not careful, if it's not a heart that has been pushed in through this filter of the Spirit of God, you you, you need to recognize that those things sound wonderful and people are drinking it in, but the assumption behind that advice is that your heart is a reliable indicator of what's right. It ignores truth. It's walking in darkness and it completely overlooks the condition of sin. Asaph confessed those things very pointedly. I was acting on impulse. My heart had become bitter. I was letting my heart rule my head. And fourthly, I want you to see this. He's saying, I was ignoring your truth. The the person that's doling out the advice, follow your heart and listen to your heart, probably does not believe in the Christian doctrine of sin. I would say to you as a church family, don't submit your instincts To the emotion of your heart. Submit your instincts to the truth of God's word. That's the way we need to live. Walk by faith. Not by sight. You know it's interesting to me. We're about to close. He says I must have seemed like a senseless animal. To you. Some translations say before you. I was like a brute beast before you. This is a pretty incredible appropriate measure of shame right here. Think about this with me. All of this was before God. God, what a fool I have been, Asaph is saying. And you might say it too. God, your spirit was before me when I was on that website. I I let my head, overruled by my heart, act on impulse. You saw me on that website. You heard me in that phone call. This is not a man who needs counseling. He's a man that needs confession. Asaph needs to come to the place where he says, God, I am in your presence, and you saw how foolish I was, and so do we. And I want to be as positive as I can on this. Repentance is not a bummer. It's a blessing. Repentance is not a bad thing. It's a glorious thing because when we stop and we focus, and we confess, we begin on this road to recovery. Eighteen times I watched that happen this week. Students who are allowing their eyes to guide them stopped, focused on God, and confessed, I need a Savior. And we have 18 brand new brothers and sisters in Christ from that youth retreat. I, I thank God that he's still in the saving business. Today, if you've lived your life with this sense of Maybe even some antagonism toward God. Maybe some sense of frustration with God. And you say, God doesn't care. I mean, look, the world's all messed up. You're looking at it through your physical eyes, not your spiritual ones. God says, if you'll stop, if you'll turn to me in confession of sin. Very simply, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Today I pray that someone would trust Christ. That you would head down this road to recovery. Confession opens the door to hope. What do you think the outcome of this confession will be? It's beautiful. He says, yet I belong to you. You have held me by my hand. You've sustained me. You know, if it depended on me, I would have given up a long time ago. I would have walked away. I would have found something else to do. I could have gone and made money and sought pleasure but the Bible compels me with truth that Jesus is worth everything because this life is short and eternity is long and the stakes are high. Even now, Asaph is reaching toward God. <laughs> the song didn't come till much, much, much later than this song. But Asaph could say, as we sometimes sing, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. So it's grace that brought me here thus far. And grace is going to lead me home. Some of you just need to reach out and touch the grace of God. And recognize that His truth will straighten out your thinking. And when truth flows in, prayer flows up. And when prayer flows up, oftentimes it begins with a prayer of confession. Lord, I have sinned before you. How foolish have I been. I've let my heart rule my head. I've acted on impulse. But you, O Lord, have held me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this powerful word. I I pray, God, even now that you would make us a confessional people, that we would cry out to you this day, confessing and forsaking sin. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand together and sing. This is a hymn of response. This is a time for you to respond to God. We have prayer partners that are here that would love to share with you from God's Word how you can be saved. They'll pray with you if you need uh, encouragement from God's Word. You come as God leads. We're going to sing together.